Biological Psychiatry on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month, the month of May, and uh, this month we are dedicating our Truth and Love podcast to talking about issues that are very prevalent in our culture, and in fact, during this time of pandemic, it's actually increasing in awareness how we're seeing the the terminology of mental health and it almost being a a fourth stage of uh, digression and and infect or affect relative to the pandemic, uh, is that mental health issues are going to grow increasingly. One of the signs that we've seen of that is a 34.1% increase in anti-anxiety prescriptions um, over the month of uh, between March and April. And so what we want to do today is, is to talk about uh, sort of a, a historical narrative for us to understand how we got to where we are today in this terminology of biological psychiatry and, and what dominates the scene, uh, the mental health scene right now, because there is a story. There, there is a way in which we arrived at a place just like this. In, in fact, Dr. David Pallison in the Journal of Biblical Counseling in 1999, 21 years ago, wrote an article called Biological Psychiatry. The interesting thing is that that narrative has only grown, and Dr. Pallison was, was correct. And what we see even further down the road now, 21 years later, is biological psychiatry has increased in its influence and in in its narrative, and it's important for us to consider why and how this happened. So this week on the podcast, I have with me again Dr. Sam Stevens, who is our Director of Training Center Certification here at ACBC, and uh, he and I, this is a, a subject and an area of interest in our studies, and I just thought it would be helpful for us to have a conversation about these things uh, to inform you uh, so that these things become uh, less fearful and less ambiguous in some of our, our understanding. Uh, Dr. Stevens, I think it's important for us to, to sort of go back and, and give a little bit of the, the history of the DSM. We talked about this last week on the podcast, and uh, on the DSM, we, we talked about its structure, a little bit of introduction. But as we get a little bit more into the weeds and talk about the DSM and how it developed over time, there were some major shifts that happened from its beginnings in nineteen in the 1950s, and, and that was just when the DSM was constructed. We had been talking about uh, nosology or what's called uh, categories, basically building uh, these ideas of, of categories of, of mental disorder for, for years, for a century at least. And so now we get into the 50s, the DSM is constructed. Uh, version 2, the DSM-2, was constructed in, in 68. And then we move, interestingly, towards a shift towards biological psychiatry uh, away from sort of a Freudian-type style of psychiatry early on in the DSM. And, and something significant happened in the 80s. Help us to understand a little bit about that shift towards biological psychiatry. Sure. Well, in, in many ways, it's it's fascinating. When you read about the history of psychiatry, it's always been a field looking for a home. And as you move into more and more into recent history, especially when you get into the 80s and you see this major shift in the actual construction of the DSM, it has expanded from uh, fairly small texts, the DSM-1 and 2, um, 
uh, fairly uh, not very significant, uh, definitely not written in the same way that the DSM is written today, uh, using medical language and, and constructs and, and even categories. Uh, the DSM-3 was a major uh, switch and turnaround to where uh, it was seeking to be established on, as Francis calls it, firmer scientific foundations. And Bob Spitzer, who served as the the task force chairman for that edition of the DSM, was uh, very influential in that switch. I believe you've got a very helpful quote to help understand his influence there. Yeah, Dr. Alan Francis, who was the task force chairman for the DSM-4, was actually a student of Bob Spitzer, and he he actually recounts Bob Spitzer's influence. And this this sort of began really in, in the 1970s. Bob had a mission. Dr. Spitzer wanted to see something happen, and this is what Alan Francis notes here about Bob Spitzer. He says, Without Robert Spitzer, psychiatry might have become increasingly irrelevant, drifting back to its pre-war obscurity. It is rare that one man saves a profession, but psychiatry badly needed saving and Bob was a rare man. And his idea was, was simply moving in direction, and several things had happened, right? He, he's trying to, uh, to make a shift to where, as you mentioned, psychiatry needed to find a home. It, it wasn't uh, just dealing with the immaterial part of a person. They were trying to describe themselves as being a, a, a solidified physician, dealing with the, the physical parts of a person. But they weren't finding any science to demonstrate that, and so they were finding themselves as people without a home. But several significant things happened, right, moving into uh, the work of Bob Spitzer. Before that, we had seen the DSM not used a whole lot. It wasn't catching uh, steam as psychiatry had hoped. It was using Freudian language in terms of psychosis and neurosis to describe uh, the problems of people, And, and for a lot of people that was sort of uh, sort of mystical. They couldn't wrap themselves around it, and that could never be proposed as as scientific truly. It was seen more as philosophy during those days. But several things happened, and, and so so think of the DSM 1980s. Uh, we're talking about the several decades before chlorpromazine comes on the scene. Several major things in contributing to what's called biological psychiatry. Chlorpromazine comes on the scene. This was This was viewed as the first uh, major contribution uh, of psychiatry to the medical world, but but there was a there's a huge difference, right? In, in the way we see uh, something like penicillin, for example, in in, in conjunction with chlorpromazine. This is a, a a renowned biological psychiatrist. His name is Edward Shorter, and this is what he says: the introduction of chlorpromazine into asylum medicine in 1955 initiated a revolution in psychiatry comparable to the introduction of penicillin in modern medicine. Do you see what he's doing? He's conflating the discovery of something like chlorpromazine to the same medical advancement of penicillin. The problem is is that penicillin was addressing a known cause, a known pathology, whereas chlorpromazine was simply treating a symptom. And uh, trying to borrow from the advancement of the medical system, now psychiatry sees an opportunity uh, and chlorpromazine really didn't work out. I mean, it, it treated symptoms to a certain degree, but but it was the, the the side effects were potentially quite fatal. Well, from that, essentially, what starts to happen is now you see a flood of research. Uh, Joseph Schildkraut's probably one of the best known uh, to build another of what we would call a pillar of biological psychiatry in what what was known as the monoamine hypothesis. This is uh, the the idea of the serotonin uh, deficit 
theory of depression that that we have too little too little serotonin, and that what that means is um, that that leads to depression from a biological perspective. And these things began to build. That was in 1965. He presented a paper to the APA. And so we see these ideas begin to build, and so it's no wonder now Bob Spitzer takes some of that movement, some of that momentum, and he's wanting to shift to make psychiatry now a significant discipline uh, because it had been waning, and now they see daylight with opportunities, and we begin to see the conflation of medical advancement into uh, this pseudoscientific approach from psychiatry now because they find things that treat symptoms, they don't find pathology, and so on. And this is what we're left with. Uh, in the development of biological psychiatry, which influenced this transition in 1980, where Bob Spitzer intentionally, he, he never shies away from this, he was very intentional to change the landscape of psychiatry in the way that we talked about diagnosis in what he called criteria-based diagnoses, where he's trying to shape the DSM into biological language. And this was a shift, again, a shift to describing now man and his problems from a philosophical narrative that we are who we are and we do what we do because of our biology. And we hear the language of Darwinian biology flooded this narrative that Bob Spitzer was trying to build. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to note, too, that that uh, people in the field, uh, uh, researchers in the field, if they're honest, and you see a lot of papers on this. In fact, we, we have an article that was just published this year in BJ Psych Bulletin where David Kingdom uh, discusses this very thing, that uh, rather than neuroscience research or a lot of things that we would say substantial science that um, underpins um, – uh, some of these theories that really it's been serendipity uh, that that has furthered the uh, key advances in psychotropic drug discovery, for example. Uh, Joanna Moncrief discussed this at length in many of her books. Irving Kirsch does the same thing, that these drugs were, were um, uh, not born out of scientific study and research that demonstrated a very clear causation and what the the drug actually uh, did in the body to address that causation, but it's been a lot of uh, trial and error, for example, and that still continues at large. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you see the the massive growth of the uh, of the use of uh, psychotropic medications in in big pharma along with the expansive growth of the DSM and its diagnostic categories. I think in many ways the DSM is all form and no substance. So I think that's exactly to what you said with the DSM-3. You have these categories built, scientific language used, but there's a clear admittance with those within the field that there really is no objective science to support that form. And so it really, uh, it's uh, in some ways, the idea of a biological psychiatry is kind of a misnomer. Uh, Alan Francis mentions this in his book. I think this is uh, very eye-opening. He says that we still do not have a single laboratory test in psychiatry. If you could stop right there for a moment, that's a, a very condemning statement for an entire field that sees itself as a medical practice and a scientific field, a, as a hard, what we call a hard science or a physical science. And he goes on to say, because there is no, there's always more variability in the results within the mental disorder category than between it and normal or other mental disorders, none of the promising biological findings has ever qualified as a diagnostic test. So these categories are uh, 
are subjective. Uh, they're voted on by committee. And even the number of items that someone has to meet in order to be diagnosed is quite arbitrary. Uh, four versus five, seven versus nine. There is no rhyme or reason behind those those numbers. I think something else to mention uh, as we think about the contradiction that is this attempt to be purely biological in psychiatry is what Joanna Moncrief talks about regarding, again, the difference between the physical sciences and the behavioral sciences. Um, and she says this, that the methods that we use to investigate the natural world in a scientific manner are fundamentally different from the ways in which it is appropriate and meaningful to understand human behavior and the mental attributes that that manifests. So we think about the subject matter first, uh, dealing with people and the, all of the different variants that uh, that involves is quite different from what we would do in, again, the hard or physical sciences. She goes on to say this, unlike the subject matter of the physical sciences, people have motives, interests, and purposes. They make choices and do things for reasons. Although human actions are, of course, influenced and constrained by various factors, including human biology and the current and past circumstances of each individual's life, they are not determined. They cannot simply be understood as the inevitable product of a given set of conditions. And so you see a logical difference between these two sciences. But what you continue to see, you see this in the university model today, that the behavioral sciences are in the same school as the hard sciences, but the subject matter is different, the means are different, the approach is different. And that's largely what psychiatry, as we understand it today, has been built off of. Yeah, and the difficulty there, I think, is, is many people would say, well, you in biblical counseling, you don't even acknowledge the biological. Well, I would pause on that, and I would say, listen, the Bible makes very clear that we are both body and soul. And if the Bible stakes that claim, it's not staking that claim as if to say that we are one part body, one part soul. What it means to be human is that's a holism of body and soul put together. What's happening in psychiatry, and this is the fault where we drive the car into one ditch, unfortunately, is biological psychiatry is simply a way to reduce the way that we understand man from a biological only perspective. And and that's what we begin to see happen in our philosophical approach to these problems of man as we try to explain it from one narrow hallway of our biology. And that's built on a, on a philosophical disposition that we are who we are because of our biology. We evolved into this uh, type of creature, and so this is this is what we get when uh, our instincts or our environment uh, dominates who we are and what we think, or our brain is broken in a certain direction, and we try to describe this only from a biological perspective. And, and this is the direction that it went, and what that does is it leads to a narrow view of man, and what we often talk about is a shifting understanding of anthropology that is contrary to what the Bible describes that is true about human beings. And what this often leads to is faulty science. And here's the deal. When you think about biological psychiatry, if you buy into the idea that God is not real, then biological psychiatry starts to make sense, right? Biological psychiatry really begins to build into some sort of narrative that is maybe a best explanation that we have for why we struggle with the things that we struggle with. Uh, but but unfortunately, what's happened is that's led us into areas of, Sam, what you and I talk about often is uh, areas of faulty science. And here again, we 
are saturated with this narrative that this this uh, discipline is scientific, and we feel that pressure between uh, science and faith. But the reality is, what's being presented is is not actually seen as true science. As you referenced with Dr. Francis's comment, there, there's not one right now biological marker that we can go to and look at from a, a perspective of cause or pathology uh, to demonstrate these issues that, that we see floating around all the time. Now, and I, if I could say anything, I would want to urge our listeners to, again, be very discerning regarding uh, popular articles that come out in magazines that claim that neuroscience, for example, that's the hot topic right now, has all the answers and we can demonstrate and prove. But what you're going to see in a lot of, a lot of the literature, even if you read the actual studies, terms that are very important. It seems to be, it implies, it suggests. Those That language is there on purpose because they don't have a verifiable link between causation and what, what they're claiming is, again, the problem. Again, in that David Kingdon article, he says very clearly, this is an article that was published this year, um, it is still not possible to cite a single neuroscience or genetic finding that has been of use to the practicing psychiatrist. This is in this is in secular research, and yet we're we're out there fi- trying to find these uh, these different articles or these different blogs posts that that claim that this that there's a connection there when there's not. Yeah, and this has been an ongoing idea, right? In, in the beginning of of uh, from 1965, the the idea of quote unquote the chemical imbalance theory, and, and that's what it was. It was a hypothesis, and I would say at that time it was a decent hypothesis in the way people viewed human beings, but it, the science is not has not uh, led out to demonstrate that that chemical imbalance theory is true. And, and I know when I say that, for many people, you're absolutely shocked. How can you be saying something like this? But, but the literature demonstrates, and this is amazing. In 1984, the National Institute of Mental Health said this, because most of us believe very clearly that uh, depression is a biological issue. I take a medication, and it, it cures or repairs or fixes what's broken in my brain. And this is what the National Institute of Mental Health said in 1984. I was five when this came out. Elevations or decretments in the functioning of serotonergic, that's just your serotonin, the neurotransmitter serotonin systems, per se, are not likely to be associated with depression. Stephen Stahl in Essential Psychopharmacology in 2000 said this, there is no clear and convincing evidence that monoamine deficiency, that means the, the theory uh, about depression, uh, accounts for depression. That, it, that is, there is no real monoamine deficit. Uh, we could go on. Stephen Hyman, Molecular Psychiatry in 2002, there's no compelling evidence that a lesion in the dopamine system is a primary cause of schizophrenia. We just have to be cautious. We're, we're not saying one way or the other. Something may be discovered in the future, but what we're saying is what is what is described and touted as science now is not as demonstrable as what the, the common man is is uh, typically believes. Listen to this. Ronald Pies, who is a significant figure, he, he was the editor-in-chief at Psychiatric Times for years and years. He's the uh, professor emeritus at Tufts University in Boston. This is what he said in the Psychiatric Times in July, uh, on July 11, 2011. In truth, the chemical notion, he's talking about the chemical imbalance theory, the chemical notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. And so that that leads us to deduce a couple of things. Number one, the biological narrative uh, is uh, distinct and philosophical. 
people are trying to prove something based on a philosophical reality, and it, it determines the way that they see data. What does that do for us? What that does for us is a couple of things. It, it frees us from feeling like there's tension between what we believe the Bible to be describing about uh, the the causes and reasons and defects of our human existence because of sin and all the emotions that are flooded with it. It's not a denial that those emotions and behaviors aren't true. It's just a different explanation as to why it helps us to have confidence in the Scriptures and not follow out to those vain philosophies and empty deceptions that the biological uh, psychiatric narrative is is pushing. Yeah, and, and again, I would just close that with that same idea. Um, uh, the assumption that psychiatry has the answers is a faulty assumption, and it's uh, definitely something that they want to push and market. Um, there's financial gain in it. There's prestige in it. There's cultural relevancy in all of it. Again, as you mentioned, in the midst of this pandemic, uh, there's been more and more—I mean, there's hundreds of articles out there right now on mental health, mental illness, but no one can really tell you what it means. And so, I would again, just urging our pastors, urging those of you listening uh, to, to really deeply consider what's been said, what's continuing to be said by many people about the uh, the very purposeful, uh, and I'd say anti-biblical uh, uh, framework and pillars of psychiatry as we consider engaging with it. Well, this has been a fun discussion, and what I want us to do next week on the podcast is discuss the idea of mental disorder from the DSM, mental illness. That is a, uh, a huge uh, category for most people. It's a, it's a phrase that, that has a lot of meaning for a lot of people. And so I want us to discuss that next week on the podcast. So we hope that you'll stay with us. We can't deal with everything in one podcast comprehensively. We're trying to help you to understand a case as we work through it. So stick with us and we'll see you next week. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, we were able to say a lot of things this week, and there's, as you can tell, so much information that that we would like to discuss. Uh, Dr. Stevens and I teach here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where we're doing this recording, and uh, we teach several classes where we go into a lot of detail. So we're trying to fit into 20 minutes, um, 15 weeks worth of information that we describe. And I want to draw your attention to a resource that uh, was recorded in uh, 2019. Uh, I was privileged to, to go to uh, an Albuquerque Biblical Counseling Conference uh, hosted by Desert Spring Biblical Counseling Center, uh, which is a training center of ACBC. And I delivered several lectures on this topic, a biblical response to mental health. Uh, we're going to post those in the show notes uh, so that you can avail yourself to those. And then also several of the books that we uh, referenced today, several of the articles we want to make sure that you have access to as well. And you can find out that information at biblicalcounseling.com.